0: We are going to be in Ephesians 1, 15 through 19 today. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of our, your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? This is the word of the Lord. In 1991, a bargain hunter by the name of Terry Horton bought a $5 painting at a thrift store in San Bernardino. She thought a friend would like to put it up in her new trailer. And her friend realizes, like, it doesn't actually fit in my trailer. So she gives it back to Terry. And Terry's like, well, this is awful. I actually don't even like this painting. And so some short time later, she threw it into her garage sale where a local art teacher came by and said, do you realize that's a missing Jackson Pollock original? And it's worth tens of millions of dollars. Imagine possessing something invaluable and not knowing it, not appreciating the significance of what you have. I think that, in fact, happens all the time, and it's the purpose of our text that we come to this morning. And here's what I mean. As I just prayed, Paul has just given one of the greatest summaries of Christian theology that's ever been written, verses 3 through 14. As we looked at last week, he's basically saying God the Father initiated. He authored our salvation. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, accomplished that salvation through the shedding of his blood. And then the Spirit comes to apply that salvation to our lives. And so he's saying by sheer grace, God chose us and predestined us and forgave us, redeemed us, adopted us, and lavished his riches upon us to the praise of his glorious grace. And we're like, yay, great theology. But my concern, which is, I think, a reflection of Paul's concern, is that many of you know this theological truth, but you don't really know it. Like, many believe in God, and you're genuinely saved. It's not like you're, you're not saved, but you go on living your day-to-day lives as if nothing has changed except your final destination, like, I'm saved for heaven, and, and you are. But what Paul is praying here is that we might understand the present-day benefits of verses 3 through 14. That we're not just waiting for some future promotion or graduation to finally receive these gifts. And so here's the one big idea of this prayer. God wants you to understand the benefits that are yours in Christ. He wants you to comprehend. He wants you to enjoy The benefits that are yours in Christ. And this is a driving passion of the Apostle Paul. Once Jesus meets him and arrests his life and rescues him from religion and saves him with the gospel. His, his whole passion is, I want people to believe the gospel, but I want them to work it down into their everyday lives so it's incredibly practical. So this is why Paul is out planting churches and preaching the gospel in the first place. It's why he's writing all these letters to all these churches, like reinforcing and unpacking the gospel and applying it to all these different things like marriage and relationships and what we do with our speech and our words and all kinds of things. And it's also why he prays this particular prayer. That, Lord, I want believers to know you more fully. I want, you, I want them to understand your gifts more fully. So there, there are four things we're going to do to unpack this theme this morning. Again, it's God wants you to understand the benefits that are yours in Christ. And we're going to look at this prayer. And we're going to see there's a cause of Paul's prayer. There's a character to Paul's prayer. There's a central request, and then there's kind of the content, okay? So cause of Paul's prayer, you notice where we started this morning, verse 15, he says, for this reason, and then because. And so he's going to tell you the reason that he's praying for these believers. But before I come to what he's thinking, I want to ask what you're thinking in terms of when and why do you pray for other believers, hopefully most of you are in a small group, a gospel community, and in that community or in a community of your friends, you're probably sharing requests with each other or sharing burdens, things that are going on in your life. And so very often our prayers for fellow Christians sound like, Lord, I have a friend going through something or they've, they've applied for this job. It'd be a great step forward for them. I'm praying that they, they get this job, this promotion, Um, I'm praying that you direct them in your will. They're seeking your will. They're praying for direction, leadership in a couple areas of their lives. I pray that you provide that for them. I've got friends that are sick, friends that are hurting, friends that are broken in their physical bodies. I'm praying for them. I'm praying for their relationships, their marriages to be strong, their friendships to be healthy. We're often thinking of all these tangible needs, and these are all good. Okay, This is not a rebuke as your friends just say here's what i'm going through the fact that you would pause in your day to take those things to our heavenly father on their behalf that that's good that's healthy that's great but it's not enough because notice here the cause of paul's prayer so verse 15 again for this reason and he says because i have heard of your faith in the lord jesus and your love toward all the saints and i want to stop there for just a moment so he's saying, I, I heard of something, kind of word of mouth. And what he's reflecting on is, remember, going back a couple of weeks, Paul planted this church in Ephesus. He spent two to three years there, reasoning in the synagogue, then reasoning in the school of Tyrannus, more like an ancient secular university. So he's, he's growing a church, and he's equipping elders to minister to the church and shepherd the church in his absence. But now he's probably been gone for most commentators, historians think probably four or five years since he's been back to Ephesus. And he's now living under house arrest, probably in Rome. But as he's under house arrest and is not so much free to come and go, others are free to come to him and talk to him and update him on how are the churches doing. So he's reflecting on someone's come and they've shared with me this report. And this report has focused on two things in particular your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and your love for the saints, which is just a way of saying your love for other Christians. So you're like, so, so what's the issue? Like, what's the problem here that he's praying for? Um, there isn't a problem. He's just, he's like, I'm, I'm praying for people who believe rightly in Jesus Christ, and I'm praying for people who act rightly in love. So, so let's keep going. Notice the character of Paul's prayer. So remember Paul's writing, because I heard of your faith and love, now keep going, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. Now I want you to notice three things about the character of this prayer before we get into the content. Number one, notice that Paul's prayer is ceaseless thanksgiving okay and he's basically saying the ephesian church as i'm now hearing these reports coming to me years later after planting it this is like exhibit a of god's grace in the ancient pagan world because as we looked at a couple weeks ago ephesus was an incredibly large by ancient standards city and an incredibly secular and pagan city these Christians are being saved out of the worship of gods and goddesses like Artemis that famous ancient wonder of the world that temple that was there in Ephesus and they're they're putting down their literally silver idols and they're turning to Jesus Christ and they're putting their faith in Jesus as their only hope of salvation and as a result they're learning to love other people who who don't look like them. You know, Jews learning to love Gentiles and Gentiles learning to love Jews and people from all these different ethnic backgrounds learning to love one another for Christ's sake. And so all I'm saying with this first point is it, t- to me, it's like it's like a father hearing a report about his kid that's off at college and it's a good report and he just can't wipe the smile off his face. So he's like, God, first of all, I just I'm just giving you ceaseless thanks. That's the word gratitude. I just can't stop thanking you for what I'm hearing. And I just ask us, is gratitude a key characteristic of our prayer? Like it's it's easy and it's natural to go to God with our requests, like my I need this and I need this and I need this and I want this, not really a need, but please do that also. Then my friends need these things and they want these things. And it'd be great if you could do a solid for them and give them that again, that's that's not wrong. But how much is gratitude? Just, God, I, I see you doing a work in this individual, in this family, in this gospel community group. And I just want to pray back to you, in dependence on you, but say thank you. Because I see you doing a work in my friend's life, and I'm just so, so grateful. So that's the first characteristic of Paul's prayer. Then secondly, I want you to notice that it's personal. So Paul isn't praying for world peace. He's not praying for like all the hungry kids in the world. There are a lot of generically good things that we pray for. And again, those are not wrong. But look at these words, remembering you in verse 16. It could be literally translated making mention of you. Some of you probably even have a translation or a version of the Bible that says making mention of you in my prayers And the idea here is that his prayers are deeply and intimately personal. Like to the degree that he knows people in that church, he's naming names. And like, God, I am so grateful to you for these elders who are shepherding and these people who are sharing their faith and these people who are loving one another, a great sacrifice to himself. And I I think this question is so important. I'm going to ask you it now. And I also am putting it in your gospel community questions to discuss amongst yourselves. But it's this, it, how personal are your prayers? And what I mean is, if, if God, like right now, decided I'm going to save every single person that you prayed for by name this past week, how many people would be getting saved? Or if God's like, that, that healing, that restoration, that renewal, that gift of grace that those friends need, I'm gonna give that to every single person you prayed for by name this past week, how many people would receive God's favor? And this is a conviction even to me because I think it is easy to pray generic prayers rather than like making mention of you and you and you and you and you you in my prayers and slowing down with God to first of all say, thank you so much for what you are doing in my friends' lives, but also now I have petitions for this individual and this individual and this individual for you to be acting in their life So Paul's prayer is this ceaseless thanksgiving. It's personal. And then thirdly, notice it's Trinitarian. And just as his theological hymn or statement in verses 3 through 14 is Father, Son, and Spirit, now he mentions God, the Father of glory, the Lord Jesus, and Lord Jesus Christ, as well as this Spirit who imparts wisdom and understanding. And I'm just thinking if if all three persons of the Trinity— are actively involved in our salvation and our sanctification. Is that reflected in the way that we pray? Even taking time just to slow down with God and and think God as, as father, as sovereign. Like, let me just think about what the father is up to in my life, in my world. Let me think about what Jesus is up to in my life, in my world. Let me think about what the spirit is up to in my life, in my world. And is there an imbalance in your prayers that they're not Trinitarian? Maybe you just always pray to the Father or just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Whereby deliberately thinking God, one God in three eternally existing persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. How is this giving me an appreciation for and an understanding of the true nature of God? Okay, so... Thanksgiving, personal, Trinitarian. Now let's go to the central request. So verse 17, what's the main thing that Paul is praying for? Because there are all these, there are these participle phrases that are kind of stuck on this main one central thing. The one main central thing, verse 17, this is what I'm praying, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Do you hear this? His, his preeminent desire is for other Christians to know and experience God. That is the central thing that he is praying out of all the things he could pray. God, I want believers. I want Christians. I want people who already know you to really know you. And you all know the difference between those two things. You know the difference between knowing someone or knowing about someone and really knowing them. Okay, as someone who was born in Indianapolis and has lived in Denver for almost 20 years, I know all about Peyton Manning. I do not know Peyton Manning. I wish I did know Peyton Manning, but I I cannot honestly say that I have any experiential or relational knowledge of Peyton Manning. I just, I know intellectually, I know lots of stats, I know interesting things. I think he's funny. I watch his like Monday night ESPN2 broadcast where he just makes jokes throughout the entire Monday night football. But I don't know. I don't know Peyton Manning. Now, this is the heart of his desire. This is the heart of his prayer. Is he saying, "I I don't want you Christian to just know God. Believe in him. Trust him, as important as that is. I want you pulling back all these layers. And look at these words that he's layering on top of each other, of like wisdom and revelation and knowledge. I mean, wisdom, like Sophia, is this insight. It's applied knowledge, not just, not just cognitive, like I memorized that fact. But it's like, okay, now that I know that fact, how does that fact work itself out in practical everyday life? That's the word wisdom. Um, revelation is kind of a neat one because it's apocalypsis, which we get our word apocalypse from. And we think an apocalypse is like Armageddon, but that's not what it means. An, an apocalypse is actually the like, sudden revelation or disclosure of something that was previously unknown. And he's like, I want the, the character of God, the presence of God to be disclosed, to be revealed to you so that you have this knowledge, which this is an, an interesting word because th- the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis but this is the word epigenosis. So he's, he's tagged on this little prefix that is like, I want you to have kind of this over the top knowledge, or it could be translated like understanding, not just head knowledge, which would be gnosis. You read a book, you have gnosis, but an epignosis of I'm getting beneath the factual and I'm getting into the experiential because we're doing life together. And, and what Paul is reflecting on is a truth, like in order to be saved, in order to become a Christian, you have to know and believe certain things to be true about God and about what he's done for you. And that can be at your initial moment of salvation, I guess, like it could be predominantly just a mental or a cognitive or an intellectual grasp of something. Like, I've heard this for the first time, this good news of Jesus. This is what he's done for me. And you're like, I I receive that. I know that's true. I believe that. Okay, you're a follower of Jesus. But what he's praying here is now that you know him or know about him and even believe in him, I want you to move into this realm of this personal, intimate, relational, two-way, experiential knowledge of God. And I contrast that with any prior experience these Ephesian Christians had in the ancient world, because it's like, okay, so if Artemis was their god, Diana, whether it's a Greek or Roman name, or any other god or goddess of that whole Greco-Roman pantheon, you you can know certain facts or claims about that god, but you cannot know or experience that god. You know, you you can bow down to this silver idol and be like, well, I know you, Artemis, but you can't know Artemis. Because Artemis has no real existence outside of this statue. So Artemis is not going to talk to you. You're not going to talk back. There's not, there's not a relationship. There's not a friendship. There's not a dialogue. And he's saying, but I want you to know what you actually can know about the Father through the Son by the Spirit. That our God is a personal and relational God. And you can know him not as an artifact of religion, but you can know him the way you know your family, the way you know your best friends. I mean, how many of you know that like in a marriage or in a friendship or in a family, as you continue to do life together, you know this person or you know these people more and more and more and more. And when you think like, oh, we we dated for two years before we got married, what could I possibly learn in marriage? And then you start learning all these things because it's a relationship and you're not static, okay? That's the kind of intimacy that he's inviting you into. You, you want to know God and the Lord Jesus Christ in the Spirit as family, not just reading about him and trying to obey him. There is that knowledge, and that's important knowledge, reading the words of Jesus, following the words of Jesus, but also being present with Jesus and choosing to do life with Jesus. So that's the central prayer, that I may know you experientially. Finally, the content, and don't get your hopes up, I say finally, and this is the last point, but there's three points in this last point, okay? (laughs) And this is kind of the content of 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 a lot of the message, okay? So look at verses 18, 18 and 19. So he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know, now he's gonna say three things. Three things I want you to know. In addition to Knowing God, first and foremost, I want you to know, number one, what is the hope to which he has called you? Number two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And number three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So notice he's continuing on this theme of knowledge, understanding, wisdom, and he's saying, now I'm praying that the eyes of your hearts, and that's kind of an interesting metaphor of like, we obviously see with our eyes. But he's like, I don't want just the eyes that lead to your brain to be open. He's like, I want the eyes of your heart, like, like where you feel things, where you are moved by things, where you treasure things. I want these eyes opened to see certain things, to be enlightened to see certain things. Now, let me get theological for a moment, okay? Paul is talking here about three gifts of God's grace. He's talking about the hope of your calling, the riches of his inheritance and his amazing power. With God's gifts, with salvation, there is this theology that says that these gifts of God are both already and not yet. And we think about this particularly around Advent every year where we're like, Jesus has already come and yet he also has not yet come again. And we live in this in-between time. And so Paul, Paul is talking about things here, three things where it's like you live in the in-between time of his hope and his riches and his power because you've gotten them in Christ, but you have not yet fully gotten them in Christ. They're not fully realized. And he's like, but, well, let's leave them for a moment. Let me just ask you. As you are living in the already and the not yet of God's good gifts to you, Which of those do you tend to default to more? Do you think like, I already have all of the riches of God in Christ and I have his power that raised Christ from the dead and I have all this hope. And yes, in the in-between time, like life is hard in a broken world and there's so much pain and I'm tempted and I sin and I fall, but I already have all this stuff, so I'm good. Or do you tend to default to thinking this way? Yeah, I know that this stuff is true, but I don't yet have it. I don't really have hope. Like I know that he's calling me home and I believe that, and that's great. But like the the riches of his inheritance, have you seen what's going on in my life? The the greatness of his power? Like I feel anemic. I feel lethargic in my walk with God. So do you tend to, and that there's a there's a fancy theological word, like, is your eschatology, like, your belief about, like, end times, which we're in, like, if you know eschatology, it's not like we're waiting for eschatology. We're actually living in it, and it's coming. It's already started, but there is an under-realized eschatology, and there is an over-realized eschatology. Over-realized is just, like, I just believe Christians are victorious in all things because we have Christ who loves us, and under-realized is, like, anemic, lethargic. I don't. We'll get it someday. Which of those do you personally lean toward? Yes, I have the power. I have the riches. I have the hope. Life is hard, but I have this. Or, life is hard, I'm living in poverty, and uh, it's coming. So, here's kind of the crux then of Paul's prayer. After saying the central thing is to know God himself, he's like, I want to pray now that the future hope invades your present, that the future grace gifts of God don't just hang out there somewhere for you to die here and go get them or for him to return and give them to you. He's like, I want you to experience the hope, the riches, and the power of God now, so shine in my heart, God, and show me things that I'm not seeing. And that's why I call this sermon, like, seeing the unseen, because he's saying it is true that these gifts are already here. They're not just future, but as we go through our day-to-day experience, and I, I just feel like it's, it's like standing on the street corner over here. If you've ever been literally on this corner, when it floods, there's a low spot right there and it fills up with this deep, huge mud puddle and the cars drive by and just throw stuff all over people that are on the sidewalk. And, and that's like going through this world. Is you're like, even the stuff I want to see, all the time, stuff's just getting thrown at you. And you just, you're just like, I got all these layers and I'm trying to see God. And this, this is his prayer. God, you do something to invade their present with your future and show them that it's also for right here and now. And I love this word illumination or enlightenment. It's the same word. Um, I could illustrate it this way. All of you know what a prism is like you played with these at some point in a science class, right? This little triangle of glass. And you take that triangle of glass and you get it at the right angle. And this white light that's coming into the prism is refracted into its different wavelengths of light. So you see what? Roy G. Biv. (laughs) The rainbow. And you realize like, wow, there's this device that lets me see there's more here than meets the eye. And he's kind of praying something like that, of like the light of God needs to shine in and be refracted in your life. So you don't just see one thing like, yeah, the hope of his riches and all that, that's great. But it gets refracted into this glorious rainbow-like display of all that God is up to in our lives. But it's even better than that because really what Paul is praying to continue the analogy of the prism is like, I don't just want Christians to see Roy G. Biv. I want them to see ultraviolet and infrared that are off the spectrum of visible light. And I want them to see gamma rays and X-rays and microwaves. And when you start doing that, I don't know if you're like me, when you start realizing there's all these wavelengths of light that are functioning, not as just like visible light, but as something entirely different, like heating your food from the inside out or like taking pictures of what's inside your body. I feel really small because you, you look at this whole spectrum of light and you're like, what we see is like this much. But I think that illustrates what he's praying is these other things are there. These other wavelengths are there all the time. God opened my eyes to see what I'm not seeing And I I mentioned these three things. Let me just take a couple moments on each of these. But the, the first thing he's saying, God, open our eyes to see the unseen hope of our calling. Now, how do we use calling today? We use it to say, like, God called me to a particular vocation or task. And to be fair, Paul uses that word this way when he says, I am called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's like, God called me, he summoned me to the task or the role of being a messenger of his. But for Paul, the calling was not primarily to a task or a role, but to a relationship. That's why if you like just let your eyes drift up the page a few verses, you'll see what does he believe the hope of the calling is? Well, the calling is into adoption, the calling is into relationship. Like we were orphans and strangers and aliens, but God in his mercy through Jesus Christ has adopted us into his family. He's called us, chosen us, predestined us into his family. And so for him, calling is first and foremost about relationship. And then secondarily, it's about identity and it's about lifestyle. Because he goes on to say, we've been called saints. We've been called holy and blameless. And his point is, even when you don't feel adopted, even when you don't feel holy, you are as a follower of Jesus because God is the one who called you. Okay, that's why he can refer to the hope of our calling, meaning that the biblical word hope is not like a pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking. It's almost the opposite. The word hope here, elpis, means like a confident expectation because I know the one who promised me these things, and I confidently expect him to do what he's promised. So my adoption, my holiness, is not merely wishful thinking. It's a confident hope. And what Paul is praying here is, God, I want the church to know and experience the confident expectation that you will finish what you started in them he, you have called them to adoption, so they will be adopted. And you have called them to holiness, so they will be holy. That's the idea of this calling, this hope. Secondly, he's praying, shine the light, God, on the riches of our glorious inheritance. Okay, Some commentators take this to mean that we are the glorious inheritance of God. We are the possession of God. And And Paul certainly says that other places, that... You know, in the Old Testament, God chose Abram, like just, just chose him by free grace. Abram was doing nothing right that God would be like, ooh, you're spectacular. Let me choose you. He just chooses him. And then there's this Hebrew people that are the covenant chosen people of God, his purchased possession, the Old Testament says. Now we come to the New Testament, and through Jesus, we realize like he's adding Gentiles to this treasured people, this possession. And so you could take that that way here. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I actually think the focus here is not so much on we are the inheritance of Christ, but rather we get an inheritance through Christ. Okay, so he's saying since we've been adopted, since we're now the children, the sons of God by grace through faith, we get the full inheritance that Jesus has earned as our true elder brother. Now, Think about that. We often live as if God is stingy or he's cheap. And maybe that's because a lot of Christians don't have a lot of material things. And you could be like, especially with inflation right now, I'm really struggling financially or this got taken away from me or I had, to, I had to pay this cost I wasn't expecting to. And it just doesn't feel like I have the riches of heaven and earth like at my disposal. But that's why Paul is praying, God opened their eyes to see the unseen riches that God has stored up for them. Help them to believe and know that this is true and to live in light of it. That's the riches of his glorious inheritance. Then the third thing that he's praying, God opened their eyes to see and believe is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Okay, So he says the the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. And so we don't miss this one. He's heaped up four different words. So if he's like writing poetry, you know how poets will say the same thing in multiple different ways to kind of give you a little different inflection or angle on understanding something. Four words here. The first is power, the Greek word dunamis, which is like this potential raw inherent power just what it sounds like. And we get the word dynamite from the word dunamis. Like dynamite's like this inherent, raw, potential power. You light something and it blows up stuff. It has a lot of strength, a lot of power. That's the first word. He's saying there's an immeasurable greatness of his power. Then he says working, which is the word energeia. We get our word energy from it. And it's like how something functions is is the energy of it. Then he uses this word great, which is the word kratos. Kratos as in democracy or an aristocrat. It's that suffix. So we understand that word. It's like the the dominion over something, the rule over something. And then he uses the word might, iscus, ability. Like the ability to do something. Like if I choose to do something, do you have the ability, the capability to do that or do you not? And he's saying, God has the capability, God has the dominion, God can function energetically. He has this raw, inherent power. And notice he says this power is immeasurably great, which is literally extraordinarily megathos. So I like that too. It sounds like a sounds like a giant shark or something. But it's like all of these things, the power, the working, the great, the might, is extraordinarily megathos. But Paul realizes I'm talking to believers who are like, great, you just heaped up those four words and then told me all four of them are extraordinarily megathos." but is that my present experience of your power in my life? No, because I just lost this, and I just missed out on this, and um, I feel weak, and I feel anemic, and I feel frustrated, and that's why he's praying for us is he's basically saying to the degree that we are living hopeless, impoverished, anemic lives, essentially living as orphans, it's because we don't comprehend the hope and the riches and the power of God that are meant to shape our lives, not just in that eternal home, but they're meant to shape our lives right here and now. Now, this is really hard. This is really hard because you're going to walk outside these doors and you're going to walk right back into the problems that you brought in here this morning of like this is hard and this is hard and this isn't going well and this really hurts and like I said, I just lost this big thing that was really important to me and it was really obvious like we should have won and just like it's just hard and maybe that's why Paul is praying for God to do this. He's not like yelling at, at, at people like suck it up like try harder, do better at this hope thing and the riches thing and the the power thing. He's like, God, I'm praying to you as the father of all glory through Jesus Christ, your son, would you please open the eyes of our hearts and shine light in so that we can see things that we just are not seeing. And Do you see why we should all add this prayer to our prayers for ourselves and for one another. It's okay to pray this for yourself. God, I'm struggling right now. I don't see this hope. I'm not experiencing these riches and power, but I'm praying for myself that you open the eyes of my heart and enlighten me, help me to know you in hope. So I'm not tripping through life in a broken world, living as hopelessly as the next person. But I can say, wow, that was painful. That was devastating. That was unfair. That was incomprehensible. That's really hard. But God, I hope, because you're the one that called me, I know that you're going to do this, but I also know you're doing it right now. I just can't see it. And, and you all have the, the maturity That at least some point in your life, you've looked back on something really hard, something really painful, something really unfair. And in moments of clarity, you're like, I didn't see it when I was in the middle of it, but I see now something good that God has brought out of it. And he's just like, we just got to pray and believe that God is always working that hope of our calling, even when we don't sense it, even when we don't see it. And by the way, get people in your life like church community, who can be around you, stirring you up and, and showing you things that you don't see right now. I mean, I, I've got friends like that that I'm like, nope, I'm just down this week. And they're like, can I share what I see God doing in your life right now or doing through you right now? Um, I need those kinds of friends. You need those kinds of friends. Let's be those kinds of friends. You know, the riches, I, I gotta be careful here Because of Harry and Meghan and all that, but like too many of us as believers are living as orphans instead of princes and princesses. I say I got to be careful because my point is not that you have some arrogant pride and some entitlement of like I'm a prince. You know, God has to bless. Well, that's not it. But but you are a son or a daughter of the great King. And are you going through your day thinking like I don't see the riches right now? I don't seem to be experiencing the inheritance right now, but I am a son or daughter of the great king, and he is watching, and he is in control, and there's probably more riches at my disposal right now than I even realize. And then power. I mean, my goodness, like, where do we need power in my life, in your life? It's like, do I, am I afraid to take a stand for God because I lack power? Am I so defeated by personal habits and Patterns of sin and temptation and failure and frustration and doubt. That's like, I need more power. Like the power that that conquered the grave lives in me. And I need to go forward, not, again, not arrogantly, but confidently. Because the gospel is real. And the gospel's power is at work in us. Okay, let me close with two simple applications of this very short prayer. Number one is what are you praying for? And both these applications are questions so you can fill them in as your answers. What are you praying for? Do your prayers, like prior to today, sound anything like this? It's like, yes, the promotion would be nice. Yes, doing well on that test would be great. Uh, Feeling better would be awesome. Defeating this thing in my life. But if you get all those gifts that you're praying for, and you don't get more knowledge of God, what have you gained? If he gives you right now everything that you're praying for materially, but you're not knowing and experiencing and resting in the hope and the riches and the power of God, you're miserable. But if you don't get those material things and God shows up in your life and says, let me, first and foremost, let me just show you myself, let me take you by the hand as it were and let you know I'm here and I'm present and we're doing life together. And let me, let me open your eyes to see what you're not seeing right now about this hope and these riches and this power. So let's pray for ourselves and our friends like this. God, open our eyes to know you more intimately. Help us to believe that every experience of our lives, the lowest low and the highest high, the good, the bad, and the ugly, It's all leading us into a greater awareness of your presence, your character, your faithfulness, your purpose for our lives. So help us to live hopefully, richly, powerfully, because the seeds of your future grace are already planted. They've already taken root, and they're growing. What are you praying for? And number two, how is your present being shaped by what you know to be true of your future? How is your present being shaped by what you know to be true of the future? Um, So imagine you knew that a rich relative of yours was gonna give you a million dollars tomorrow, but your mortgage payment's due today. Would you be wringing your hands and being like, oh no, I don't have the cash to cover my mortgage payment? Or, uh, sorry, Dave Ramsey, would you just put it on your credit card? If you knew I'm getting this tomorrow, you would not have any worry about saying it's as good as if that future gift is already mine and I'm going to live today in the reality. I'm not going to wring my hands. I'm not going to be anxious. I'm not going to be worried. I'm not going to break down in tears. I'm going to live like what's coming tomorrow is as good as it came today. And I think that's exactly why, in part, God gives us glimpses into the future grace because he intends for those promises to transform every single day that we're living now. Brian Chappell puts it this way, all of the resources of heaven are our inheritance, his mercy, his providence, his provision, his promise and eternal life and are ours to claim because he is our father. Further, this means that God provides us the treasures of heaven, whatever is needed to fulfill his purposes in our lives. The riches of God are our sure inheritance, and as such, we can leverage our estate against present trials and challenges, knowing that they are not greater than what God will provide for us. And I, like, like having a wife in real estate, I locked in on leverage our estate because I see her doing this all the time. It's like this. How many of you own your house outright? Congratulations, you guys. I love that. I love that for you. Um, I don't. I have a long way to go, especially with interest-only mortgages. Um, I have a really long way to go. But here's the picture. It's like, we talked about this last week. When you make a deposit on a house and you start making those payments, you don't have to wait until you make all 360 or whatever payments, whatever your loan term is, before it's like you own the house. Now, you, you both already and not yet own it, if that makes sense. Like, the bank is not sitting like there. Your house doesn't do any good for the bank for it to sit empty. They want you to live there. They want you to treat it like yours. They want you to take care of it, and they want you to make their, your payments, okay? But you already not yet own your house. And as you start making these payments and you get a little bit of equity, you can do this fun thing where you like refinance and borrow against the equity in your home and take money out for like a home improvement project or something else that you pay pay medical bills or whatever you need. And that's kind of a picture of what he's saying here is like, if you know this whole thing is like already but not yet yours, how are you leveraging your estate, which is actually yours in Christ, to live a certain way now? So instead of going through life like risk-averse and just being like, well, I don't, I don't know. Like I couldn't take that risk for God because what if I lost? Well, I mean, we can talk about that because we've lost and like we're still here, okay? It, it's, it's okay. And in a way you can be like, that's on God and he is way wealthier than any of this stuff that, that I've lost or that you've lost. So we can keep going and we can take the next risk for his glory because we only got so much time down here and I don't want to just be squandering it living anemically, living hopelessly, living like a poor orphan instead of what I actually am. And that's why I say this whole prayer is God wants you to understand the benefits that are yours in Christ. And uh, going back to my opening illustration, may we all be like that art teacher to one another where we stop each other, We, we arrest each other's attention and just say, you don't understand what you have, do you? let me tell you. Let me help you understand in Christ what is actually yours and in community in love help one another actually live as if this future gift is a also present reality to the glory of God.